Well, as the children are being dismissed, uh, I just want to make a couple comments before the reading here. Uh, one is just a, a broader comment about where we're going with our series. So, the last few years, at least, we have tried to be in the Gospels from Christmas to Easter over the course of the life of Jesus. And uh, we don't, of course, always get through the whole story every time, but uh, we will... Uh, be covering this morning and tomorrow, or I guess, not tomorrow. You want to come back tomorrow? No. Um, next Sunday. Uh, we'll be covering the rest of chapter 6, uh, which is really appropriate leading up to Easter. And when we wrap that up, we will take a break from John and then uh, move into Daniel and be thinking through Daniel after Easter about... Uh, about what life looks like when you are not the dominant voice in society. I think that'll be a key theme in Daniel that'll be helpful for all of us. So that's just a, a kind of note about where we're going. I thought it was probably about time I sort of mentioned that. And as we pick up in chapter 6 here, you may remember last week if you were here, uh, or maybe you were here and you don't remember, uh, Jesus had fed the 5,000 this was a big miracle. It's in all four Gospels, which is actually unique. Uh, there's not a lot of material necessarily that overlaps in all four, um, aside, of course, from his death and resurrection. Uh, but that, that's, that's in all four Gospels. And Jesus had, at the end of that, the people had wanted to make him king, and he withdrew from the crowd. He sent his disciples back across the Sea of Galilee, or the Sea of Tiberias, as it's also called. And Jesus, in the middle of the night, went walking on the water um, out to his disciples who were already there. So, of course, the crowd doesn't know where he's gone, which is where the passage picks up. So, uh, we'll pick up in chapter 6, verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do, that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it, is not, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that, no, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, let's pray that he would open it to us. Father, we thank you that you've given us your word so that we can feed on the bread that is from heaven. Would you feed us on your son through the power of your spirit? We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, Christopher Hitchens is, was a... Um, pretty well-known journalist and uh, something of a social commentator and a well-known atheist in the late 20th century, early 21st century. Uh, he was a avid critic of religion, but you know, in particular Christianity. And he, he told a, uh, a particular story to make a point about what it's like to believe. He said, Owner of do- owners of dogs will have noticed that if you provide them with food and water and shelter and affection, they will think you are God. Whereas owners of cats are compelled to realize that if you provide them with food and water and affection, they draw the conclusion that they are God. Uh, Obviously, he was a cat person. I don't know where you are on that. But... uh, his, of course, his point that he was trying to make was that uh, we can draw very different conclusions from our situation. I, and I think what's interesting about it is the idea that when our basic needs are in question, we either are quick to look for someone that will just meet them, or when they are provided, we will think that we have, of course, met all of our needs in our own greatness. And so, when Jesus says that he is the bread of life, it's such a basic image and such a basic issue of life. How are we going to eat? 
What are we going to feed on? That it unlocks, in a lot of ways, the, the most basic things about who we are. And this passage, and he keeps going, by the way. We'll wrap up this uh, conversation next week. But what we see unpacked throughout this passage, and it does kind of wind its way around and loop back around to some of the same ideas as a number of Jesus' speeches in John do, but we see these themes. We see that he is the bread of life, that the Father is the giver of life, and we'll see what it means to live on the bread. The bread of life, the giver of life, living on the bread. Well, okay, Jesus is the bread of life, right? Our first point, no mystery who it is. But again, remember the context. Jesus has just fed them. So literally, they're thinking about bread. Uh, They go looking for him. And they're a little bit indignant when they can't find him. Uh, In verse uh, 26, of course, uh, Jesus points out to them, look, you're seeking me because you have a full belly. He makes the distinction between seeing the sign, right, that is to say rightly understanding what on earth Jesus was doing and feeding them, and simply just getting something good from him. And this is interesting because there have been hints all along in John that the crowds are coming to Jesus because they like the miracles, and at one level, like, who, who can blame them, right? Who can blame them for being compelled by the fact that he heals? That he provides for food? <laughs> I mean, why wouldn't they show up looking for that? And so Jesus starts to make this distinction, though, about why did you come? And I'm going to tell you, by next week, he's going to drive a big wedge (laughs) into this issue. Uh, But he starts to open it up even here, right? You came for your belly. You came because you want more of that good stuff. That's why they came. But Jesus is not like even the manna that came down from heaven. And notice that he, he says, you know, he starts talking about this bread, and they start thinking back very naturally, of course, to Exodus. To Exodus 16, right? As soon as the people are out of Egypt and wandering in the desert, they have no supplies. And God provides bread from heaven. They start to think back on that, as they naturally would, to the manna given. And Jesus says, look, you know, it wasn't Moses that gave you that bread from heaven. This is verse 32. But my father gives you the true bread. So it's not only just that it actually wasn't Moses who gave the bread in the first place, right? It was God who gave even that bread. But God is now giving something even more, the true bread, the real thing that will feed you. In other words, right, it's, it's this simple idea. You eat, you feel full, but you get hungry again, right? You digest your food, you need more. And Jesus And this kind of echoes what Jesus says about living water back in chapter 4 and never having to thirst again, right? He's saying, here, I've got bread and you'll never hunger again if you take of it. And of course, the people are like, yeah, that sounds great. 
And this is so important to understand, right? We go to all sorts of things to fill us up. I mean, not just food, although sometimes it is food, right? Uh, but it doesn't last. Jesus isn't simply talking about food, but he's talking about our hearts. And just as we have a, maybe a complicated relationship with food at times, you know, it, it's kind of telling of our hearts. I mean, think about it, right? Uh, some of us are kind of comfort eaters, right? Where we eat to feel comfortable, to feel comforted, I should say, be a better way to put it, right? Maybe it's just a little bit of chocolate. Maybe it's a lot of pizza. I don't know. But, um, we eat to feel comforted. That's one of the things we do. But I mean, we do a lot of other things to feel comforted too, right? Binge watch a show. Sometimes we fill up our social calendar because <laughs> my life can't be meaningless if I'm busy. Uh, maybe, the, maybe, the, maybe the most telling thing that we do to comfort ourselves is to flip through social media, right? Of course, the great irony, and this is the most, probably the most telling example, is because it's wired to get your brain firing so that in the, in, at the moment, it feels good to sort of swipe to the next thing. But of course, all the studies tell us that you're miserable. The more social media you, you intake, the more miserable you are in the long run. Because what happens is, while it feels good for a minute to flip through, inevitably what sinks into your heart is that I'm not as interesting as all my friends. Or I don't have as much as they have. Or we take in all the terrible you know, social commentary, you know, filled as it is with mockery, which again gives us a taste of something good, but in the end just sows bitterness in us. Right, and so our, you know, social media is the perfect example of this. It kind of feels like it's comforting for the moment, but it actually leaves us hollower in the long run. And yes, I do have an Instagram account and a Facebook account and all those other things, but not all the other things. I have a Twitter account that I never use, and I'm too old to understand TikTok. But the, uh, you get the point, Right? We go to comfort. Sometimes, we, sometimes we're control eaters. I mean, when we actually talk about you know, literal eating disorders, this is often actually what we're dealing with, right? But we love, that we, we love the idea that we can do something to control life, to control what's going on, to get the reins, right? Maybe it's your money. And so we keep a tight rein on it. Maybe it's your me time. Maybe it's your workouts. Whatever it is, right? We, we, we do something to try to get a sense of control in our lives, and it's ultimately a delusion because something derails it. And the tighter we grasp, the more seeps out. Or here's another. Maybe we're approval eaters, this is the foodie impulse. The person that's posting all their pictures 
of all the of all the stuff that they're eating, right? And maybe it's be, whether it's you know healthy eating or adventurous eating or just showing off the types of restaurants that you can go to. I mean, we do this with all sorts of things in our lives, right? We we do things that we know will be will get the applause of others. That when others hear that we did this, they're of course going to pat us on the back. Because we're desperate for approval. In other words, Jesus' metaphor here is so telling, right? That we do all these things to kind of feed our souls, but they don't add up. But Jesus does. You see, Jesus is the one that gives us comfort. Because the comfort that Jesus offers is not here one day, gone another. It is from eternity past. It is realized in his body and blood given once for all. And it is our hope in life and death is that he gave his life for you. (laughs) Not only that, he actually tells us he's going to send the Spirit who he calls the comforter later in John, for you. Jesus is also the one who provides everything we need. Everything meaningful that we actually need in terms of an identity that is not dependent on our performance. A sense of self, a sense of being loved, that doesn't depend on how well I've done today or when the last time I screwed up was. And Jesus is also our perfection, the final word of approval that we need, not on who we are, but who he is. Because he is perfect in everything that he's done. It is part of what's so hard if you'll accept the expression, of stomaching Jesus. Because we don't want his perfection. We want to convince ourselves that we're perfect. But there is no other way. Because to convince ourselves of our perfection is to constantly be disappointed. But Jesus is not like the bread that we try to make for ourselves. He doesn't disappoint. And notice, this is where he goes when he starts to think about the giver of life. So he's the bread of life, but then he starts to reflect on the Father. We've already kind of noted this. He makes the point that when the manna was given, right, it wasn't Moses that gave it, it was was from God. And now the better thing is here. And yet they're still asking for signs in verse 30. Did you notice that? It's funny how this comes up over and over again in the Gospels. Jesus, usually right on the heels of doing something amazing, people will say, well, give us a sign. You know, the, the clear implicit message is, you know, because that wasn't what we were looking for. Well, that's not really what I want necessarily. So tell us, do it the way I would ask for it. And so it's not a mistake that in verse 41, we hear that the crowd is grumbling. Jesus in verse 43 will echo that. And that word is not a mistake. 
<laughs> that word is not an accident. Because that is exactly how the people wandering in the desert after the Exodus were described. That word's used over and over again in the book of Exodus and uh, as well as in Numbers to describe what it was like for that generation that while they had seen the amazing things God had done, they had witnessed the plagues. And you know, one of the amazing things about the, especially the last several plagues, is that God makes a distinction. So that literally there's like darkness in Egypt except for where Israel was. Every firstborn in Egypt dies except for those who were with Israel and had spread the blood over the door. They had seen all these things. They had seen the Red Sea parted. And Pharaoh's army swallowed up. They had seen God provide the manna. And later he provides quail and he provides water over and over again when they need water. They had seen all these different things. They had seen, you know, as you get into numbers, they'd seen these battles that were were improbable, that they had won. And over and over again, we're told that they grumbled against God. I mean, so much so that when Moses in Deuteronomy 1 is summarizing everywhere that they've been in his farewell, he describes them as an evil generation. Psalm 78, which is the psalm that they quoted to Jesus in verse 31, Psalm 78 describes that generation as evil as well. So it's not a mistake, by the way, when Jesus then, in a bunch of other places, will describe his own generation as an evil and adulterous generation. He is echoing the idea of the Exodus as well, that you were seeing the amazing things that God was doing, and you would not believe. You would not trust him. Instead, we grumbled because we're grumblers. Because when you're hungry, what do you do? Especially, you know, you especially see this in young kids, right? When you're hungry, you grumble. It's such like an onomatopoeic word, right? Grumbling. Grumble, grumble. Because we don't, you know, this is the, this is the reality. We, we want what Jesus is supposed to bring, but the question is, do we want Jesus or do we want the thing that he's bringing? It's a question of means and ends, you understand? A question of whether Jesus is actually the thing we want or if he's just a means to getting something else. This is one of the great problems we have, especially in the American church. I think generally Western churches have lived for a long time with the old dream of Christendom, the, the idea that all of society would be ordered around, I mean, this is, the, this is the positive perspective, that all of society be, would be ordered around Christianity, around the Bible. And so, the promise of that kind of thing is that whatever it means to, to kind of flourish and have a good life socially should just be very naturally an easy fit with what we're called to be as Christians. Now, I think there's a good reason to think that was always a delusion. But that is certainly falling apart, right? 
that we are increasingly becoming a post-Christian society, you know, and you can feel it accelerating in places like Charleston. Um, but the promise of Christendom was that you never had to decide between Jesus' means and end. That to be a Christian meant all these other things came along with it. There were all these fringe benefits. It also meant the church, you know, it meant churches kind of swelled because all the fringe benefits were there. And listen, a lot of people will bemoan the loss of that arrangement. And there are losses. I don't mean to say that there are not. But the beautiful thing that we can learn as a church now is what Jesus is trying to teach the people here. Is this question, did you come because you have a full belly? Or did you come for me? That one of the great benefits of the erosion of Christendom. You know, one of the strange mercies, you might say, of becoming increasingly post-Christian as a society is that it clarifies our motivations. Again, I'm not saying there aren't things to mourn losing. <laughs> you see, but it, it's demanded that we answer this question, why did you come? Because you won't come. If, if Jesus is no longer uh, advantageous for all these other things, right, Jesus becomes a liability. That it doesn't have to be a problem, I, I guess is what I'm saying. Certainly, this is going to be a theme as we look at Daniel uh, in the future. But Jesus doesn't have to be seen as a liability because what's being clarified is whether we are worried about many things or whether we are worried about this one thing, whether we are concerned with the better portion. Remember the story of Martha and Mary in Luke 10? Martha is busy with many things, trying to entertain all the guests. And at one level, who can blame her, right? That was her role. And she's mad, though, that Mary would sit at Jesus' feet. And this is Jesus' response, right? Mary's chosen the better portion. She recognized the one thing that mattered. All the other things were on the fringe. And what Jesus is reminding these folks, what we are being reminded of in this passage, is that this is a great gift that's been given to us by the Father, the Son himself. So do you want him? Do you want the gift? Or do you just want the wrapping? To put it a little differently. Do you just want the wrapping? Do you just want the extra stuff that comes with it? You know, when you're, there's nothing better than like unwrapping a gift with a toddler, right? And they think the paper is the thing and the ribbon or the bow. But it's not the thing. It's not the gift. You have to help them see, right? And this is what Jesus is doing. He's saying, look, see, God gave you manna so that you would see 
that he is a giver. And even now he is giving you the bread of life so you would know him. Don't miss it, right? Don't miss the, don't miss the true bread because you have a full belly. But we're grumblers because we're hungry. And we grumble a lot, of, a lot of things, don't we? we? We grumble about jobs. We grumble about relationships. We grumble about achievements and recognitions or the lack thereof. We grumble about our health. We grumble about our wealth. We grumble about our emotional state and our social standing. And we can always grumble. If we're of the mind to grumble, there will always be something there to grumble about. Because there's always something we wish, we think, God should be doing for us. But we're missing the joy of the best thing. You see, the way to deal with our grumbling hearts is to begin to talk back to them. And I'm afraid that the ways that we learn to talk back often, especially in the church, are dead ends. Because they only turn out to feed the grumbling. There are things like, well, it could have been worse. You know, it's not that big a deal. Or, well, you know, you kind of deserved it. I feel like there's a lot of that, right, in churches, right? You kind of deserved it. But you see, those responses, while there might, they might be half-truths, there might be a kernel of truth in those, they do not deal with our grumbling hearts. The only way to deal with the grumbling voice is to answer with the truth about Jesus. This is what Jesus has done for me. This is what he has done. This is what he has provided. This is where he is taking me. And if you're not telling yourself that, you're actually not feeding yourself. And many of us don't want to tell ourselves that all the time. We think, well, I knew that. I know that. I've been there. I learned that lesson. So let me do something else. Now, that actually gets to what it means to live on the bread, because that's exactly what the people say. This is exactly what they tell Jesus in verse 28. He starts talking about uh, the food that endures to eternal life, and they say, they naturally seem to take that idea to be like, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? That's their response. Okay, there's a bread that, do, that never lasts. Well, what do we do? What's the recipe? How do I bake this myself? That's their concern. How do I bake it myself? What must I do? And, you know, there's, a, there's an, you know, one of the all-time favorite moments of mine in the office is from an episode where Michael Scott goes to the CFO's office, house for, with, with several others for a party. And, uh, you know, Michael, of course, does not really understand what this is. And so he shows up, he shows up early for one thing. Um, 
So the CFO's wife is still in like her bathrobe and like her hair up in the, in the towel. And uh, he shows up and of course it's a catered event. And they've literally got like all silver serving wear out and everything else. And Michael shows up with a Tupperware full of potato salad, which he later admits to the camera has been sitting in the car all day. You know, it's like, this is what they're offering. Jesus is talking about himself as the bread from heaven. And they're like, yeah, yeah. How do we make the bread for ourselves? And it's like showing up with the disgusting Tupperware of potato salad that's been sitting in the car all day and just sliding it onto a silver platter. That's what they're doing. That's what they're, that's what they're offering. These are their solutions. And Jesus has made the meal. It's like showing up at a Michelin star restaurant with your, you know, truck stop sushi, being like, hey, I brought this to the to contribute to the meal here. You know, the chef's going to kick you out. They don't want what you brought. God doesn't need your contribution. In fact, your contribution is not welcome. I think this is why Jesus starts talking about election, about predestination. Did you notice that? Kind of sprinkled throughout this passage. He comes back to it over and over again in verse 37. He tells us that everyone who comes to him is given by the Father. In verse 39, he says that he will preserve everyone who is given to him, everything that's given to him. In verse 44, he tells us we won't come on our own except that the Father draws us. And of course, the goal of all this in verses 39 through 40 is that we would be raised up to eternal life, to be with him. And, you know, this isn't a whole sermon on predestination or election. It's, of course, sort of one of our most uh, notorious doctrines in Presbyterian reform circles. And there's a lot of questions. Okay, I'm not going to answer all of them. But the heart of the matter is simply these two realities, right? The depth of the problem and the greatness of God, right? It's the depth of our sin, That our sin is that kind of nauseous potato salad smell when you crack open that Tupperware that's been sitting in the, in the car all day. That we are not merely rule breakers, but our lives are actually so fundamentally distorted and out of step with who we are and what we are made for that we are spiritually incapable of recognizing what is good, even when it's right in front of us. I mean, one way to misunderstand what Jesus is saying about his own generation is that they are more sinful than any other generation. No, he's simply pointing out that they have it right in front of their face and they can't see it. What Jesus is trying to help us to see is that we don't have any power on our own. You know, Paul's going to go on to describe us, you know, later on in history as dead in our sins. In other words, coming to faith is not merely a matter of sitting back and reasoning your way to a good decision. It is more like waking the dead.
That's the depth of the problem we have. It's not merely that we sometimes want to get up, sometimes want to, it's that we don't want to get up. We can't get up. And the other side of that is God's greatness, right? That nothing happens outside of his control. And that in some great mystery, even our choices, even our sinful choices, are never outside the reach of his design. That's so great and comprehensive is his, his, his knowledge and control over everything that's coming to pass that even those things are a part of it. Again, there's great mysteries here. And Jesus isn't inviting us, and this is always important to remember, to speculate about who's in and who's out. Or, and this one's a real important one, who, why we're in or we're out. Because we are told that it is never because of what we bring. It is never what we bring to the table. It is always his love and his grace And so our desire to introduce works back into what Jesus provides, our desire to maybe bring a loaf of our own, you know, bread that we've baked up, that is a desire to control God. It is actually a refusal to accept Jesus for what he is, the provision for everything that we need. The desire for me to think, well, yeah, yeah, God, but you know, what have I got to, what am I supposed to contribute to this is always a way of me trying to get around the fact that I need Jesus from beginning to end. And listen, if you're, if you're not a Christian, you're here with us this morning, the point of all of this is to say that nothing we do suffices. It's not just that, you know, there are some nice people out there. Well, yeah, sure, at, at that level, they're nice. But in the presence of God's banquet, it's like that terrible potato salad that's been sitting in the car all day. It doesn't, it not only doesn't fit, it's not wanted. <laughs> and if you are a Christian, I know what you're saying. Doesn't God want me to change? Yeah, yeah. He wants you to change because you've fed on what he has given. And the way that he changes us is not by trying to bring our own works to the table, but by trusting in the works of Jesus. So that even whatever righteousness it is that works out in our lives is simply Jesus' righteousness working in us. And whenever, you find our, whenever we find ourselves thinking, yeah, okay, I know that Jesus is sufficient, but what am I supposed to do? We are barking up the wrong tree. The better question is, I know that Jesus is sufficient. So what does that mean for me now? Do you see the difference? One is a way of saying, yeah, 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 but what can I bring? God doesn't want what you bring. He wants to feed you himself. He wants to provide everything that you've needed. And you can leave that, your stinky potato salad in the car. 
He wants you to come and feed on him. So let's go to the table and do that. Father, we thank you that we don't come under our own power. We do not come with our own sufficiency, but rather we come to the table this morning to be fed by you. Trusting that as we feed on these signs that you've given us, that our hearts will be filled because they are working in us by your Spirit, a greater confidence in all that Jesus has accomplished. So we pray that as we come to this table, Lord, you would feed us, even as you said. In Christ's name, amen.